feast. We're having our harvest supper next week. How would you like to come back if you want to uh, feast with us then? Um, I want to show you a, a, a feast uh, here. Um, there we go. Okay, so the feast here. This is a feast for the birds of our garden. And that is a new feast for them because this was put up by Penny yesterday. Penny Starr and stepmother have been visiting us for the weekend. And Penny's father is an incredible carpenter and can make anything you ask him to. And so for, for Penny, he made this. So it's, it's a metal um, um, sleeve. Here. Well, it's plastic, actually. It's, it's plastic. And so Penny yesterday dug this hole and put a special uh, thing in the body, in the hole there to hold it. And then this plastic sleeve and then... And then the wood bit on the top, and there are four different feeding stations for the birds. Wow. Here, right? For different kinds of birds, right? So what's in those different things? Peanuts? No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> birds are in the Bible. Yes, yes. No, you've got Niger. You seed in there, right? For the finches? For the yeah. For the goldfinch. Something right? Okay. Peanuts and something else. Squirrels. Nothing for squirrels. Nothing for squirrels. It's all barricaded off from the squirrels. No squirrels allowed. So you've got one, two, three, four different feeding stations that any bird of any kind, of any type, can enjoy. Except squirrels. The bird. Pigeons. No pigeons. No, they're flying rats. Not actually birds. So, birds will be feasting in our garden even while we are here feasting on the Word of God. Yay. Excellent. Okay, so we like a feast. Now, Jude's going to read our passage. So, <coughs> over to you. The parable of the great banquet. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, everything now is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please, excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I am on my way to try them out. Please, excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became, became angry and ordered to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll go a long way for a good meal, won't we? I mean, for a good meal, we will travel, right? I'm going a long way for a meal soon. Uh, some of you may know TJ and Sonia, Sonia and Louie. They got engaged. And uh, they rang me up and said, would I come to Singapore to do a wedding for them? Wow. I said, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very convenient. Singapore, a bit of a Tough to get to. Now, so I said, of course, I mean, what a privilege. 
I'm stunned still that they asked me, um, and then they're going to pay my flight. I mean, wow. uh, so, well, they say that. I haven't actually booked it. <laughs> 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 I haven't seen the money yet, but, uh, but in faith, you know, so I'm going a long way for a meal. But it's more than a meal, isn't it? Yeah. It's not about the meal. It's about the occasion. It's about who will be there and, and the relationship. And I think this passage is all about relationship. It's about who, not just about what. And I think we'll hopefully learn a lot about this. Now, this meal isn't until January. The 7th of January is the day of the wedding. So there's some time between now and, and then, which uh, will quickly pass, I'm sure. But this gap of a few months, maybe what, four months or so, is not very long. The meal that Jesus is talking about here in Luke 14 is one that the Israelite nation have been waiting for for 400 years, at least, since the end of the time of prophecy, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, we would, we would read it as. They've been waiting 400 years for the Messiah to come and say, this is the time of banqueting, this is the time of feasting, God is now with his people again, and it's going to be a wonderful new era. So they've been waiting 400 years. As an example here, in Isaiah 25, this is the kind of thing that they would have had in their minds. This kind of feast. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast, a feast of rich food for what all people <coughs> A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples again, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Doesn't this sound like the cross and then the resurrection, the new age? Uh, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Let's come to this great feast and enjoy the feast, the banquet with God and all His people and all nations. And when this was written, when Isaiah was prophesying, it was understood at that time and in the time shortly after that this referred to a time when God would bring in the Gentiles into the, into the kingdom. That was understood. It was always God's intention and God used the Israelite nation to draw the Gentiles, all nations in. And that's what all nations is referring to there. But in the 400 years between that prophecy, or 400 years or so, and in the time that Jesus is speaking, it had, become, it had been reinterpreted and reinterpreted, effectively watered down or narrowed, you could say, to where now, by the time of Jesus and the Pharisees, they were thinking that this only referred to Israel. That the all nations was... Jewish people who were scattered to all nations. It had slipped from its original intention, its original message. And Jesus has come to say, you've been interpreting this wrong. You've been thinking wrongly about this. God wants all people at this feast. Which is including us. Which is an awesome thing. Someone who understood this properly would say, as Jesus is, is talking here with the chief Pharisee, one of the head Pharisees here, someone who understood this pro properly would then say to Jesus, blessed are all peoples who will eat at this feast. 
But what the chap says is, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And by one, he's saying one like me. One like us. The singular, not the all peoples. So, in his mind, the Gentiles are to be permanently excluded from this feast. Jesus has come to correct that thought and to teach a few other things about the nature of God, which we'll get into in a minute. So, we've got three groups of people in this parable. Who are they? Let me ask you what you think. We've got three groups, right? We've got the first group who don't come, the invited who don't return, don't come back, can't actually come to the feast when they're called. We've got a second group who are the poor of the streets of the town, and then we've got a third group out in the lanes, in the countryside. Who do we think they are? Who's the first group? Who do we think this represents in the parable? First group, those who were invited but do not come. Jewish people in general? Yeah? Anybody who refuses to come by extension? Uh, I think in the original context. Reasonably selfish people. That's true. We'll get into that in a second. Yeah. But I think in the immediate context, it was people who considered themselves to be pious Jewish people, who considered that they were uh, worthy of being invited and being there, but that they had a choice. The second group, the poor of the city, who might they be? The poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled. Yes, that group. Who might they be? Those in need, possibly the Gentiles, yeah. sinners, those regarded as sinners, those looked down, tax collectors, careful what you say about tax collectors, because my father-in-law used to be a tax collector, <laughs> okay, so you know, <laughs> tax collectors, got to love them all, okay. Yeah, I think, I think the second, within the third group, third group, why, why a second group and a third group? That's a question. Right? So if it's, all, if it's just this other love, this other group, why, why a second group and a third group? What do you, what's the third group? It's a little bit different, right? They're the, the ones out in the lanes, the roads and the country lanes, okay? So why, who are the third group about? Any ideas? The lost. The lost? The far off, who would be? Gentiles. I think the third group is definitely Gentiles. I think the second group is probably those who a pious Jewish person would consider not worthy, and other Jewish people not worthy of being in the kingdom. So that the real sinners, the tax collectors who are Jewish, uh, the, the Levi, the Matthew, uh, perhaps the, the uh, Zacchaeus, the those kinds of people, right? Maybe also uh, the women that Jesus. Uh, hung around sometimes who had an immoral background, the woman of the well, and people like that. So I think, I mean, you know, we've got to be a little careful about being too definitive, but I think we've got the pious Jews who expect to be in the, in the feast, we've got the uh, sinful Jewish people, and then we've got the rest, which is us, really, the Gentiles who are far off, as it talks about here in the book of Acts. So that's what we've got. Now, let's think about this invitation for a minute. Um, the, uh, the host has already invited these people. They've already said they're going to come. And then he sends out a message. And the message comes by text. Or WhatsApp. <laughs> or, no, it doesn't. Okay, no, it's a, 
it's a servant who goes out and says, Come, for everything is now ready. Okay, so everything's ready. Why a second invitation? A second invitation because no one had a watch in uh, those days, right? You didn't have a watch, you didn't have a clock, you didn't know exactly when to come, so rather than you have to guess what time to come, a servant would go and so knock on the door and say, now is the time. Everything's ready, come. Time in, those, in that culture in those days was elastic. It still is in some cultures. <laughs> um, so that second invitation meant you've been invited, you've agreed to come, come now. And it really was now. It's not like come in a couple of hours. It's come within this hour. Come now because everything's ready. Why do they need to come now? Because the meat, uh, the animals have been slaughtered, the meat is ready, and it's going to go off. Again, there's no refrigeration, there's no freezers. Um, it's ready, so you better come now or it's going to go off. So that's why they need to come right then now. The host will only have slaughtered as many animals as he believes will feed the guests who have already been invited and who have agreed to come. So it's important that they come because that's the amount of food that's available. Um, and that's the context. It might be inconvenient to come now, but you knew this day was coming, this time was coming, the invitation was coming at some point soon. And so you, you would prepare your life to be ready to drop everything and go if you respected your host. And in this culture, the person inviting you would be a peer or someone just above you, maybe. So, so this is not somebody you can snub and they have no social consequences, especially in a town or a village. And don't forget, towns and villages were small. So we think of Walford as a town, but it's 75, 100,000 people plus the surrounding area. A town <coughs> in those days might be just a few hundred people, possibly a few thousand, but it was small. A village even smaller. I grew up in a village of 4,000 people. I mean, pretty much everybody knew everybody. Uh, and, and that happens in, in a smaller place. So this, this is significant. So, it might be inconvenient, but you come. And the word come, here in the Greek, is in the tense called the present imperative, which means keep coming. In other words, you've been coming because I've invited you. Now continue your coming by coming now. So there's an expectation and understanding in that culture and these people that they have agreed to come and that they will come and they're ready for this invitation and the servant comes just to confirm it and say now is the time. So that's kind of the context here to the excuses which I think are important. And I think as we're sitting here today, we may need to bear in mind that God comes and invites us at the right time when everything's ready. He comes into our lives and many of us here can attest to that. That God came at just the right time. It may not have been convenient. It may not have been exactly when we were expecting. But God came, it was the right time, and then it was up to us to respond. I wonder if today there might be some of us here for whom this is the right time. To respond, to then attend the feast, whether we're older or younger. Retired, still working, still got a mortgage, still paying off student debts. Or whether we haven't even got as far as student debt, that is coming from. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't say that, but uh, uh, get a scholarship uh, would be my advice. But uh, whether even now, you know, that this is the time. God comes at just the right time. Will we respond to the invitation? So we've got two points today, two things to look at. Firstly, love rejected. Love rejected. Isn't it sad that they reject the invitation? These first three people that are mentioned here. The one who has a field, the one who has oxen. And the one has just got married. And, and it's a rejection of love. I think in the parable sense of what, what is God, what is Jesus saying here about God? God is saying, come and enjoy fellowship with me. I'm ready, it's the right time. And they reject 
is love. Now, how, how tragic it is when love is rejected. You know, uh, uh, we get used to excuses from hearing excuses from people who haven't done what they said they're going to do or turn up. It's sometimes we need an excuse to fob somebody off. I don't know about you, but I really don't like cold calling. And I find it very difficult to know what to do with cold calling because I don't want to lie and say I'm busy if I'm not. You know, and I've got, you know, or something. On the other hand, I don't want to have a long conversation. And I don't want to be rude, so I don't know what to do. I know that somebody I know who, when they get cold calling, uh, picks up the phone, it's cold calling, and they say, they ignore what the person's saying and say, what about my lawnmower? <laughs> and they go on with their spiel, and he says, no, no, what, what, what's happening with my lawnmower? <laughs> and just repeats that until they get tired and put the phone down their end. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. I haven't got the strength to do that. Right or wrong, but they do that. My father hates cold calling, and what he does. Do you know? In the old days, before police had walkie-talkies and all that stuff, in the old days they had a police whistle. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? One or two. It's a little silver thing about this long. You blow it, and it emits this incredibly high-pitched sound. And so, if a policeman was chasing a criminal. They blow this whistle. Stop, thief! And off they run out. They know they run off. That's what they did. Incredibly piercing sound. My father got so fed up with the cold call. He'd have a police whistle. I don't know where he got it from. Had a police whistle next to the phone. He'd pick up the phone. If it was cold calling, he'd go, piercing. And then break your eardrum. I felt really sorry for those poor cold callers. But that's how he dealt with it. And I had to be careful because sometimes if I rang him, I, I rang him, I had to speak quickly, like, hello dad, because if I paused, he thought it was somebody calling from a foreign country in a, in a call center, and then he would blow, blew, then he blew my eardrum out a couple of times. Um, we like to get rid of people who are annoying us, and we find creative ways to do that, hopefully uh, loving and Christian ways, but, we, but this, this is not cold calling. This is your host, your friend. You've already said yes, I know. And now, these three people, let's talk about these three people. By the way, these excuses would have made the audience laugh. We don't get it so much these days, but this is really funny. I mean, this is like comedy gold here, as far as Jesus and his listeners are concerned. So when Jesus says, look, I'll tell you what happened, they began to make excuses, and already the audience would be like, no. Because you don't do that. That's like, no, you don't do that. And then he says, the first said, I've just bought a field, pause, for company effects. I must go and see it. And the audience be like, oh, no, what? Go and see a field? You're kidding. And then, uh, please excuse me. No, he won't excuse you. No, it's not going to happen. And the second guy, another said, okay, what's coming now? I've just bought five yoke of oxen. And the audience would go, because that means a really wealthy person. I mean, that's like somebody buying five tractors for his field. He's got so many fields, so many acres. He's got this huge landowner, wealthy landowner. Five yoke of oxen. Because nobody in the crowd would have five yoke of oxen. Most of them might not even have one yoke. So, whoa, big, big guy, right? Five yoke of oxen. And, pause the comedy effect. I'm on my way to try them out. And the audience would be like, no, that's stupid. You wouldn't do that. And please excuse me. Bad, bad, bad person. Still another said, I just got married. And again, he wants to be like, oh, that's nice. I just got married. Oh, that's sweet. Excellent. Um, and then, 
Pause, comedy effect. So I can't come. Yeah. <laughs> just got married, that's okay. It's not the wedding day. You still need to eat, right? Give your wife a, a evening off. I mean, uh, anyway, it's only for a few hours. They'd be like, yeah, then again, they'd laugh. But, and I can't come. Oh dear. That's the rudest of all the responses. Please excuse me, please excuse me. I can't come. Huh? Can you handle it? I mean, it's, it's incredibly rude in this culture that they didn't even grasp, I think. I struggle to think of a parallel, but in our culture. But anyway, very, very rare. So, with the first guy, he's more concerned about money and his business than anything else. It's sick. This is a materialism point, I think. Material things. He's like, oh, this is more important to me. Fields don't change. You wouldn't buy a field in that culture without inspecting it. Um, there was a contract for every sale of a field. The contract would specify the wells, the walls, the springs, the trees, the paths, previous revenue, agriculturally, from this land, and anticipated rainfall. I mean, you knew how much rainfall your land was likely to get. So this was a serious investment. You were really checking it out. That's what you do before you bought it. You wouldn't have to go and look at it afterwards. We may not think that buying a field is such a big idea, but it was a deal, but it was in those days. Agricultural land was incredibly scarce. I mean, we see in London and in the environs how people they're, they're building flats right now into the tiniest little spits, tiny little places, squeezing in flats here and there because land is so scarce. Land very scarce for agriculture in those days. A lot of the land had a, had a name, so it's like uh, it's not like that plot over there. That's that is Jim, and that's Fred, and that's Laura, and that's Jagat. I mean, they had names for plots of land because it was well known and everybody knew about uh, these things. They were very important. Plus, um, the negotiations often for land lasted years. They weren't concluded quickly because it was a big ancestral family thing. So this took a long time. So you knew what you were buying. Everybody knew what you were buying. Plus, this dinner is almost certainly the end of the day and that part of the world is dark. You're going to go look at your field, which you've already looked at for years, in the dark. And that's more important than going to a feast that you already agreed to go to. Come on. I mean, it's actually, it's nuts. So, modern equivalent? I don't know. It might be like saying, oh, I just bought a house over the internet and I've got to go and have a look at it. I mean, you're not going to do that if you're own planning, right? You're spending hundreds of thousands of pounds in the world. So, uh, the chat with the oxen, um, I think that's a bit like someone with new toys. Uh, you know, I love, my, I love new toys. I love a new gadget. Uh, it's just great. Can't relate, Leon. I'll educate you later. Uh, I mean, I love a new toy. He's got his five yoke of oxen, very wealthy man. Uh, that makes him in the top, top small percentile of landowners and wealthy people in the country. He's a very wealthy chap. Um, clearly, he must have people working for him. If someone has to go and try them out, one of his, one of his minions can go and try it. Trying about it. it doesn't have to be him, plus you have tested them. If you were buying oxen like that, the person selling you the oxen would bring the oxen to your land and demonstrate them on your land. Or you'd go to a marketplace where everybody would be demonstrating all their oxen and you could say, I'll have that one and that one. So you, you don't buy them unseen, you know what they're already capable of, you know their horsepower or ox power <laughs> or whatever it is. Something like that. So this is uh, again a bad excuse. Plus, these animals are almost certainly they're unclean. So what you're saying to your host is, I would rather spend some time with some unclean animals than with you. It's a calculated insult. It's not just an excuse. 
because he prefers to do something different. And the marriage one, that sounds most, most reasonable, doesn't it? Sounds kind of reasonable. I just got married. I mean, I'm enjoying life with my wife and um, all that entails. So, you know, I mean, uh, I'll come next time. But I've just got married. But again, in the, uh, some people will point to Deuteronomy 23 where it says that someone has just got married and is excused from going to war. But I don't think <laughs> going to war for a year, which is what it would be, is quite the same as going for a few hours to someone's house for dinner. <laughs> I don't think that's right, quite the same ballpark. So this excuse is just as transparent as any of the others. Uh, marriage does give you new obligations, but it doesn't uh, release you from other normal social obligations, which you've already agreed to before you got married. So, as we assume, anyway. Uh, it's not the wedding day. And also, anyway, a host in a culture like this, a small town or village, is not going to plan a big banquet at the same time as someone else is getting married. Because it's like a, a village couldn't handle that. You couldn't handle both of those at the same time. So there's no way it's occurring at the same time. Last bit of, uh, last bit of very politically incorrect um, stuff that's going on here, which is this. The person who says, I've just got married, I can't come, is saying, I can't come because of my wife, or my woman, in the translation usually. Uh, but, you see, men didn't talk about their women with other men in public. Now, he's saying this to the master's servant. You don't talk about women to someone else's servant. You don't talk about your own wife. That's not what you do in that culture. You, you, you may, might make some other excuse up. But you don't talk about your woman in that context. In fact, uh, there's a great story of um, a chap writing home. He's away traveling on business, and this is in this period of time. He's writing home to his family. He's got daughters. He's got a wife and two daughters. He's writing home to his family. And who do you think he addresses the letter to? He addresses the letter to his as yet unborn and unconceived son. <laughs> he addresses his letter to his non-existent son rather than address the letter to his wife or to his two daughters. Now in our culture that seems like insulting and, I mean, I understand that. I'm just saying, as Jesus is telling the story, this would shock his hearers so much. How could he talk about his woman in front of that man so that knows a servant? It's disgraceful. So it's, a, it's an interesting cultural situation we have here. This is by way of, in a sense, introduction to all this. It's shameful what they're doing. It's embarrassing to the host, it's rude, it's against all the cultural, uh, culturally accepted ways to behave. The rejection of love is not like, I'm a little bit busy, it's like, I'm not coming, I don't care, I don't care about you, I'm not interested, you're not, this is the feast I want, you're not the host I want, and I don't care if you don't like me, I don't care what anybody else in this village thinks of me, from now on, I, I am set, dead set against you. And of course, unfortunately, this was the response that Jesus received from the people that he went to speak to, to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law, to the scribes, to the very ones who should know most clearly that they have been invited to the banquet of the Messiah, and the very ones who should recognize him as the host of this great feast. What a tragedy. Similarly, similarly, it is possible for us who know some about God, who know some about the Bible, who know some about Christianity, who know about God and about Jesus. It still can be the case, even though we know a lot, that we, that we reject the real Messiah. The one who's come to shake up our world somewhat. 
especially perhaps some of us who grew up in the church, hello front row, you can see you, and not picking up you, but it's just, it's one of those things, right, you grow up around it, you grow up around your Christians being Christians, I mean your parents being Christians, oh gosh, that's tough, I know, but, you know, they, it can be, and you, we grow up with that, and we get in, immune to some something inoculated against it, perhaps in some ways you might think, you know, like, I know all this stuff, I know about God, I've been going to church since I can remember, and all that stuff, and the, the temptation is to not consider carefully enough what the blessings are of the feast of being in the kingdom, and of rejecting God without even realizing or thinking about what we're doing. I mean, these people did, did think about it, they did realize it, but nonetheless, sometimes we even miss the point. It's, it's funny how sometimes we can be surrounded by Christianity but miss the point of Christianity. And some of us grew up in church-going culture, right? In our homes, and, 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 and we miss the point. Just being around Christian people does not make mean you get the point. And I, I think that, for me, that's where it's so important that we have our own conviction. You know, when we're younger or whatever, that we, we study the Bible ourselves, we read it ourselves, we think about our faith, we, we think, now why would I accept or reject it? I need to think about it. I need to have good reasons. Have my own reasons. Not my parents' reasons. Not my reasons. Not somebody else's reasons. My own reasons. Mm -hmm. Let me think about that. So I don't miss the point. Mm -hmm. They missed the point. They missed the love. And it was tragic. Really tragic. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected God's invitation. They preferred other things. They missed the banquet. And, of course, in this uh, parable, the host gets angry, doesn't he? The servant goes back to his master. It says he became angry and ordered his servant to go out. Streets. Go out of the streets. The alleys. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So, the unfortunate. And this is where we think about why is the host angry? Why is that reasonable that the host is so, so angry? Well, what would happen to you if you prepared a feast and no one showed up? How do you feel if you paid for the whole thing? Not only that, every single one that you'd invited had agreed to come. And by snubbing you, they were making you, your word, your name, muck in your street, in your culture, in your uh, village, in your school, in your workplace, in your all the people around you who know you. I uh, know I'm not surprised he's angry. And it's wrong for God to be angry. It doesn't mean he doesn't love because he's angry. But there is anger there because he has been wronged. When we're wronged, it's fair. And so, what does he, how does he respond? I think this is the interesting thing for me. Um, when I'm snubbed, when I'm insulted, my nature is not to be generous. Uh, maybe you're better than me at this. When, when I'm mistreated, I want to go and hide uh, or I want to go and attack. So it's either go into my cave or it's or is to attack. You know, have you ever received one of those emails from somebody? Uh, which is a bit, you know, it attacks you. When you've been misunderstood, or a text message, or, or a conversation, maybe even a church, but somewhere where you, you, you've been misunderstood, you've been attacked, and you feel unjustifiably attacked, and you feel like you would be justified in attacking back. Have you ever felt that? You're all good, pure hearted people. Not like me, okay. I just, I want to attack, or I want to go and hide. What does this host do? He says, I've got a load of meat, I've got a big feast, I'm hurting, but there are people out there who could really use a good time. 
Why don't we go and invite them? Some people who might say yes. And so he sends the servant out, and uh, we find now love accepted. Love's been rejected, now love is accepted. The first group we talked about, uh, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. What are they like? Uh, the crippled, that means a loss of any use of any limb, not just uh, walking. These, I think, are the outcasts of Israel, the sinners, so-called, so amongst their number. Um, these are guests who will need help to attend. They, they, the blind are going to need leading there. The lame are going to need carrying or assisting or supporting along the way. This is not an easy job for the servant. And by the way, there's only one. There's only one servant in, in the parable, right? He's going to go out and back and out. I found one poor person, get another one. Okay, I found a blind person, get another one. I found a lame one. Okay, get another one. What haven't we got? Let's get a full set. Someone deaf? Okay. I'm a deaf person. I don't know how he did it, but he went out and back and out and back and of course, and the meat, meat was ready, so he had to hurry, right? He's running back and forwards. I found another one, I found another one. The master's like, great, it's not full. Keep going, get another one. And, and then he's got that lot in, and the master says, no, there's still more room. Tell you what, go to the countryside. The servant by the stage is like, look, I've been running all over town. I've got all these people. It was hard work. You're sending me out of the countryside? That's further away. That's off the bus route. No tube. Okay. So, and he hasn't got a car. So he's running off the car. He goes down some lane, finds someone, brings him in. Okay, another one. And the chairs are filling up. There's still some room in the back. Okay. Now there's room in the standing room in the back. He's off out again. I mean, this is hard work. I pity the poor servant. I think the host, yeah, okay, he's getting his room full. He's having a good time, I think. But anyway, I guess the servant gets blessed uh, in the end. I don't know. I guess he gets to be part of it. But that's, that's not clear. But this, this is a great illustration of God's grace. It's a fantastic illustration of, of God being comfortable around people other people are not comfortable being around. This is illustrating God being comfortable having people around Him that are so different from Him, it might be hard to believe He can relate and understand and really can. But He does. God's grace is unbelievable. It says in this passage that the servant was told to go out and compel them to come in. This is not compel as in force. This is compel as in persuade. Strongly, <coughs> strongly persuade, that's the word, but it is a persuasion. Why does the servant need to compel them? Because <laughs> you're the servant, you're sent out, you go out, you find some blind person, you find someone sleeping in a country lane under a bush, because that's all they can do, and, and you say, banquet time, and they're like, no, it's a feast. And they're like, you've got to be kidding, I'm not invited to any feast. I, you have to get invited first, and then you come secondly. Yeah, that's how it works. And they're like, no, no, no. I know, I know it's unusual, but this is an unusual master. Believe me, he's got me running around all over the place. So, but he really cares, and he wants you at his feast. And so, but, but no, I'm, I'm destitute. I'm sleeping on the streets. I'm blind. I'm crippled. I'm unclean. They would be unclean. If someone said earlier, I can't come to a, a feast like this. And of course, we're talking here in the presence of a Pharisee who would never have those people in his house. And so the servant has to say, I know it's weird, I know it's odd, I know it's hard to believe, I know it doesn't make any sense, I know no one's ever done this for you before, this is a one-off for the first time ever, but you've got to come. And so he takes the chap by the arm and they go, and he has to go back for another one, and another one, to persuade another one, to persuade another one. That's why he has to compel them to come in. What a, what a vision of 
How God is. Isn't God like that? Didn't he send prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet of Israel? They were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were tortured, they were killed, they were martyred. He sent another one, and another one, and another one. And finally, in the last days, who does he send? His son, the ultimate servant, to come to the rebellious people. And what did they do to Jesus? They reviled him, they insulted him, and ultimately they killed him. And still God begs us. Still God sends his servants. Still God sends people out to us and to the people around us and say, come in, come in, it's okay. Yes, I've been hurt. Yes, I've been rejected. Yes, I've been insulted. But it's okay. I don't care. I don't care as long as you come and enjoy my feast. I want you in. I want come in, come in, come in. That's what his, his phrase, his repeated phrase, come, come, come. Not reject, reject, reject. Not you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. Just shape up and then you can come in. Clean up, wash up. No, no, come in as you are. He doesn't require them to get washed, to get clean, to get righteous. They don't have to be a Pharisee. They just need to accept the invitation and come in. It's a powerful thought. Powerful. It's like the field, the oxen, the marriage excuse don't wash. Instead, he wants these people on the streets. He wants those who are blind. He wants those who are disfigured and who no one else wants, he wants them. And we are the people who want to persuade others of this God, this heart, right? Mm -hmm. These scriptures we're reminded of the way that Paul preached. How did Paul preach? He preached with conviction and strength and truth, but he preached with, he persuasively. He's come. He persuade, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. He said, you can persuade me to become a Christian. Uh, Agrippa says to Paul, and Paul would say, absolutely, I want to persuade you. He did say that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we have friends, family, and you, try, you really want to persuade me to become a Christian? The correct answer is, yes. I want to persuade you to become a Christian. I want to persuade you to join this feast. You don't have to. It's your choice. But I want to do everything I can to persuade you. Come and join. <coughs> Come along. And that's who we are. That's 2 Corinthians 5, that last verse there. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is, what we are is plain to God. And I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We try to persuade others. It's strenuous work. I mean, I, I do believe that. You know, I, I, God does, does all the growing of people. You know, he, he gets things ready. But it's still hard work to help other people become Christians. There's just something about that, a bit like the servant here. It's strenuous work. God wants his feast in his house to be full, full up. And it's risky. And these dirty people in our lives. Either we may feel a kind of dirty or the world may perceive in that way. It's a bit risky. But it's the heart of God. It's the heart of God we are trying to imitate. So, just to wrap up here, then we're going to take communion after this. Because I think it's so appropriate to take communion, which is a representation of the Messianic feast, the feast with Jesus. And it's actually his banquet, I think, in this passage, the last verse. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. I tell you, the you there is plural. So I think at that point, Jesus is now talking to the crowd. I tell you, crowd, not just the chief Pharisee he's been talking to. I tell you, crowd. 
that not one of those were invited will get a taste of my bank, but Jesus is saying, my bank, okay. I want you there, but not if you reject me. Not if you make excuses. Not if you don't take the opportunity I'm giving you. And I don't care how smelly you are, I want you in. And the communion reminds us of that. The communion says, here's bread, here's wine, here's body and blood of Jesus Christ that's there to convince me that I'm acceptable. And hopefully to inspire us to convince other people the best we can that they are acceptable to. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we want to thank you from, uh, from deep within, Father. We want to thank you that you care about us enough so much that you would even send Jesus to die on a cross, even, even though we don't deserve it, even though we rejected you, even though we have hurt you. We have worked and lived against you at times. But despite all that, your patience is unlimited. And your kindness is unlimited. Your love is not inadequate. Your grace is complete and ready for us to enjoy. Father, I pray you help each one of us to, if we've already accepted this invitation, to, to live that, in, that acceptance. And to persuade our others the best we can to come to this feast. For those of us who haven't yet accepted the invitation, we pray, Father, that your love will touch the hearts so that every one of us in this room, whether it's now or in the future, will come in and enjoy this feast. Thank you so much for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Take some bread and wine this night.